Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask my guest to reveal the five things from their life, no matter how unimportant they may seem to others, that they find significant enough to want to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they must also pick something that they wish to be rid of from their past. Something embarrassing or unjust that they are happy to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest this week is the journalist, author and political party founder, Catherine Mayer. And that's a description you won't hear every day. Catherine has had a highly successful career as a journalist at The Economist, as president of the Foreign Press Association and at Time magazine, as editor-at-large, Europe editor and London bureau chief. She was also successful when she sued Time for discrimination on the grounds of age and gender. Catherine has written several best-selling books, including her controversial biography of Prince Charles, Charles the Heart of a King, which generated worldwide headlines with its claims of dysfunction in the royal courts. Who would have thought it? In 2015, Catherine, along with her friend Sandy Toxvig, founded the Women's Equality Party and in 2019 founded the Prima Donna Festival, a festival of ideas, writing, music and comedy. Catherine was married to the guitarist and producer Andy Gill, a member of the highly influential band Gang of Four, who died unexpectedly in February 2020. Catherine kindly allowed me to visit her at her home in London, and as I'm sure you'll agree after you've heard her, she is an extraordinary person. You know, you go through life just assuming that the person you're with yeah. knows everything. But social media makes it weirder because sometimes, like, 
with Andy and me, we'd do something where one or the other of us would tweet like I'm doing this and the other one would go, really? <laughs> or, oh, is that where you are? <laughs> yeah, I thought you popped out to the shops. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually, I did that with Andy once. I turned on the radio and Andy was on, I think it was Six Music, and I actually did think he was in the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> How did you meet Andy? Um, at the... Page 46 party. So the Page 46 party was in the analogue days of the A to Z. Mm. You would be invited if you lived on the page of the A to Z in question. And I did not live on page 46, but I was uh, invited by my sister and I went there and he also did not live on page 46, but he had been invited by... (laughs) <laughs> a friend, and I saw him across a crowded room wearing white jodhpurs, a frock coat, with a large bowl of trifle under his arm, which he was scooping out with his hand because he hadn't been able to find a spoon. <laughs> and I laughed at him, and then I continued to laugh at him for the next nearly 30 years. Yeah, well, it's a good way to start, I always mm. think, if you laugh at someone. He was such, such an extraordinarily brave performer, so bold in what he did. Well, he was also very musical. He was very easily offended is the wrong word, but his ears were easily offended (laughs) and his eyes were easily offended. So, you know, he used to slightly flinch at the things that we mere mortals did. (laughs) Yeah, I like Bross. Yeah. (laughs) You what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also, I mean, as you can probably hear on this nice late summer's day where we're recording it that one of my neighbours is playing some music and you can only barely hear it but that would have like been bothering him already yeah it's a kind of hypersensitivity that I've noticed with a lot of musicians Mm. those who haven't made themselves deaf by standing too close (laughs) to the monitors (laughs) that's me (laughs) that's me I'm barely hearing that music (laughs) terrible uh so it was um, it was a shock for all of us when Andy died, mm. but it must have been awful for you because you had to go through him being ill and thinking that he would recover. Yes, he certainly wasn't expected to die when we took him to hospital. Um, there was quite a lot of publicity about it, mm. um, two waves really, because there was the publicity when he died, which was very strange because obviously you're in shock over a death and then coping with everybody knowing. I don't really know what's worse because I can't compare it to anything, but, um, I mean, I've had a lot of other people close to me die, but never never the love of my life. And I think sometimes for people who are grieving, it's difficult because they feel everything's changed, but nobody around them knows. I had the opposite problem, which was that suddenly everybody knew. And you feel very conspicuous and it also meant that I had press ringing and I had people I barely knew thinking it was a good idea to ring um then when he died the uh, official diagnosis was um that he had died of pneumonia and major organ failure but of course then it appeared to be very much like the symptoms we were beginning to recognize from covid Mm. But it was not thought to be possible that it was COVID because, you know... Too early. It, it, yes. So, I mean, he, 
he was admitted to hospital in January and he died on the 1st of February. But then later when I saw the symptoms over and over again on television, not just the symptoms, but I kept seeing footage of people dying and it was just like watching Andy die. And I then heard about a French patient who had been admitted to hospital in France in December and whose tissues were then retested by the hospital as part of a kind of review and they had detected the virus in his tissues um, from back in December. Mm -hmm. And so at that moment, I wrote to Andy's specialist and asked if it could be, you know, what I thought I might be asking a crazy question, but did he think that Andy may have died of COVID? And he replied that, in fact, the hospital suspected this and had been investigating and asked me to sort of try and do my own kind of track and trace operation. So then I began to look into it. um, And it raised all sorts of horrible possibilities, including, you know, my stepfather having died a month before, whether we may have in fact brought it to him because Andy had been touring in China. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I mean, for whatever reason, it was very sudden and absolutely not the outcome that the hospital expected and certainly not what I was expecting. And then we went straight into lockdown. So, um, I mean, I'm very lucky compared to so many of the people who have lost the people they love during the pandemic because I was able to be with Andy every moment that he was dying. I was able to, I had a tiny private cremation for him, just me and his brother and one of his best friends. But then I had the big memorial that you were at. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, it was so nice to be able to do that. But that was, you know, I'm not sure if you remember the timing, but that was just before lockdown. It was about a week before. I mean, I now look back and worry that we were a terrible vector of infection, having 400 people there. But um, we did properly, you know, we gave him a proper send-off. So I feel that I was very lucky compared to other people. Um, And then we went into lockdown. And, of course, my mother, who is 86, was living on her own for the first time ever. My sisters and I decided that for various reasons, I was the obvious person to look after her while she was shielding, though she never really, she never quite (laughs) believed us that she was supposed to shield. Um, And then my mother and I have ended up writing a book together. So Mm. it's um, called Good Grief. And it is, um, it's about what... what Because you both suffered that grief. Because we both suffered, suffered... the grief during the pandemic so it's it's kind of it's about grief and it's about love and it's about covid but it's about i think it's about a lot more than that i've written a book and then it's interleaved with letters my mother's been writing to my stepfather to tell him what had happened since he left this mortal coil (laughs) (laughs) but anyway so i've been i've certainly been very busy yeah quite Um, but but you know it's been i have to say it's been a very surreal year Sorry, we got a helicopter coming. Yeah, <laughs> they're probably going to crop spray us. The, the police thought they could find me, but uh, <laughs> not the Scarlet Pimpernel. The, the listeners won't know how you're dressed today. <laughs> you do actually look like you've escaped from a kind of, you know, what was that that movie with Robert Shaw? Uh, the Sting. The Sting. I you do look, look like you. You look like you're on the run. I've got my hair slicked down. <laughs> 
and I'm wearing, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a waistcoat. Yes. How absurd is that? I like to think that you do all of your podcasting like this. <laughs> Usually in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, we're going to talk about things from your life. Yeah. Uh, things that you treasure, just little things that you'd like to put into a time capsule. It's very funny when you asked this question about things that you treasure because it made me realise another bad thing about the pandemic and, you know, watching watching the terrible populist leadership around the world. Leadership is so the wrong word. But seeing these venal governments around the world with people who just don't know... Um, how to do things but also don't care who are completely both venal and incompetent it is I think raising all of our blood pressure so when you said you know what what are the things that you cherish I was like god it's so easy at the moment to think what I want to get rid of but the thing you know the things that I cherish I mean I the other problem I think is having just lost so much but I then did enjoy thinking about things that I love and want to preserve. Mm. So what's your first item you're going to put in? Laughter, but, uh. but particularly helpless laughter. <laughs> so I come from this family of people who, when we start cracking up, we actually can't stop. And my father's terrible this way. Um, and it's always that kind of laughter that is exacerbated if you are in a situation where you shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> so he has laughed his way through funerals, he, um, possibly Andy's. Well, he wasn't at the funeral, but possibly the memorial. I wasn't watching him. But the more inappropriate it is, the more he will laugh. Mm. And all of us have a touch of that. But we also have this thing where my sisters and I, we're, we're all really similar in this way, that once we start laughing, we can't stop and we start crying. <laughs> So I, I, like, literally weep with laughter. Yes. And there was something really nice happened after Andy died, which was that the Sunday Times had done an interview with us. It's for that feature they call Relative Values. Mm. And um, they had it holding, but they hadn't run it yet. And I didn't know, you know, because they interviewed separately, so I had no idea what he'd said about me. And so they ran this really lovely interview with him, about me. Wow. Um, so it's like hearing from him beyond the grave. Mm. But after that, the very nice journalist called Helen Cullen, who had done the interview, sent me the full recording of it. So I then heard it. And there was more that a lot more that didn't make the cut because she spoke to him for about an hour. She asked what he valued about me. And one of the first ones he said is that when we were both young things, that I used to laugh so hard that I'd fall over. <laughs> <laughs> And to be honest, like, we always made each other laugh all the time, but the laughing mm. so hard that you fall over, that you can't breathe. <laughs> but in my case, it's very, it's like um, a lovely woman called Michelle, who I used to work with at Time magazine. She and I used to get hopelessly hysterical because we'd have really late night closes of the magazine. Mm. So you're like in the middle of the night trying to get everything to work. And we would get so hysterical. And she calls it, instead of ugly crying, it's ugly laughing. It's like there's like tears and snobs and you know, like rolling around on the floor. She and I, my God, the stuff we used to laugh at. Um, 
And the point about the things that make you laugh is they're not that funny to anybody else. No, when you relate them back. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the stuff around death is very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had the worst one. I rang the funeral director to pay for Andy's cremation. And when they were taking my credit card details, they asked for the expiry date. <laughs> and I, I started laughing and then trying to hide that I was laughing and he thought I was crying. And that made me laugh a lot more. <laughs> so that kind of laughter, even in something as horrible and as bleak as that, mm. it's like it makes your ribs hurt, but it makes the rest of you feel better. Yes, it really does work, doesn't it? Mm. I can remember those moments in my life where it's happened really clearly. I remember once in my parents-in-law's house, a man coming back from the pub and trying to tell us a joke and not being able to remember it. <laughs> uh, some, yeah, but somebody trying to tell a joke badly <laughs> is always much funnier than somebody really, telling a really joke. In a, in a, and I mean, I'm afraid it makes me laugh when people make mistakes. That tends to... Yeah. I mean, you, you with acting, it must be... I could oh. never do without corpsing all the way through. <laughs> yes. It is difficult. They're the yeah. moments. It's the moment when you're being most serious and then something awful happens. <laughs> I once finished a play with the entire cast not able to say the last lines. <laughs> and we laughed for about three or four minutes and then they brought the curtain down. <laughs> and that was not a comedy. That was not a comedy, No. We'd been rehearsing a play and somebody said, very good, everyone, we'll do it just once more. And we were all supposed to go, oh, no. He said, tomorrow. And he never said tomorrow because he said, we're going to do it once more. And we went, no. And one of the people went, oh, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) And we were gone. We just stood there crying with laughter. People must have thought it was the strangest play in the world. (laughs) I'm afraid I've now thought of another not funny one that's hilarious to me, which is... Let's swap not funny stories. (laughs) My very, very good friend, Nikki, who um, I was at university with, when we were sharing a flat back in our very wild youth, we had been to a party and we came home very late and with that kind of hunger that is only induced after a certain kind of party at a certain time of night. Mm. And we walked into our flat and I turned around and she was sort of basically eating peanut butter straight out of the jar. <laughs> and she's like me. So both of us have strange Amer- sort of semi-American accents. And I turned around to her and she went, mm, this peanut butter sure tastes good. <laughs> and I, I literally was completely helpless with laughter for about three hours for just that one sentence. And now, I mean, for years later, I just occasionally say that to her for no good reason. Yes, and it sets you off. Yeah, it sets both of us off. That's your private joke, though. Yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? It was private, but I've just told you. Oh, OK. And everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I exchanged um, postcards with a friend of mine for years, and all we ever wrote on it was, having a wonderful time, love Ethel, <laughs> which was a card we'd seen in somebody's kitchen once, and it made <laughs> us laugh inordinately. <laughs> That's the title of your next podcast. <laughs> the Bad <laughs> Jokes podcast, having a wonderful yeah. time, love Ethel. It may be on my tombstone. <laughs> all right well we're going to put helpless hysteria Uh, that goes into the time capsule so that's number one yeah so what's next diving Um, diving yeah what in the sea yeah not high diving i'm talking sub aqua i've been thinking about diving a lot recently because again one of my trains of thought after andy died was like he 
everything about being with him was so great. And I was trying to think, did I give up anything? But the only thing I could really come up with that I gave up was cold water diving. Because when we got together, I was a member of a British sub-aqua club and we used to train all year round, but we used to also dive from April to November in British waters. Oh, my God. And um, we used to do... BSAC diving is much sort of more technical than a lot of the stuff that people do in blue water because it's you tend to dive in lower visibilities and mm. to greater depths here and often in colder water and stronger currents and all mm. of those things. And um, the thing that I really love to do is dive wrecks, shipwrecks, as opposed to other kinds of wrecks. I'm not <laughs> yeah, yeah. quite sure what that was. <laughs> that was a very helpful clarification. Um, so I have decided whenever COVID permits to um, dive Scapa Flow, which I've just always wanted to do. Um, which I suppose is full of wrecks, isn't it? Well, there were over 70 wrecks because mm. the German Imperial Fleet was scuttled there by the Germans who didn't want to give the ships back. You no. know, I mean, when they were captured, they didn't want to hand them in. And then in um, the Second World War, a British destroyer was torpedoed by a German U-boat. And it's in very cold water but very clear, and they've become, over the years, they've become artificial reefs, you know, very beautiful. Mm. So I just always, always wanted to do that. But diving, it's not just about seeing the unearthly beauty of, of underwater landscapes, but for me, it's really a weird one. There's something addictive about the sensation of diving, about if you do it well, mm. you know, if you're in control of your buoyancy... You're weightless and you have... You, have you ever had those dreams where you fly? Yes. And where you're sort of skimming things really effortlessly? Slowly. Well, it can be... It depends because there's something called drift diving where you deliberately catch a current and you can go really very fast with no effort on your part because you're going with the current rather mm. than against it. Mm. But it is like those dreams where you can fly and you're flying through these strange underwater landscapes and you are weightless and you're in this other world and I I just find it so incredibly pleasing and absorbing and um those dreams are magical mm -hmm. and when you do have them you really don't want to wake up and, yeah. and it seems always that actually from that dream that's when you do wake up yeah and you're desperately trying to hang on to that ability to float yeah I've never done had dreams where I've flown very high. It's always just been above, exactly. the, just above the ground. Well, that's and and you know, underwater you get with wrecks. They create their own sort of sheer drops and and perspectives and like cliff faces. But depending on the underwater landscape, you can get cliffs and you know, really vertiginous drops mm. and everything. It's wonderful. The last time I went diving was really strange and fun too. So I mean, I have. And Andy did come diving with me in blue water. Andy would go diving there. And we did do that together. But I also had a very strange job diving. Damien Hurst did an exhibition called Treasures from the Wreck of the Unbelievable, which was a huge art exhibition in Venice, so big that it was in two different huge venues there. And the kind of conceit of the exhibition was that these were not his works, but that they were ancient treasures that had been salvaged from a second century CE shipwreck. Yeah. 
And he made a whole film to go with it. And he knew that I was a diver. So he asked me to play myself in this film as a journalist. So he made these enormous sculptures and then sank them. And then I was filmed underwater, kind of like seeing supposedly... Well, no, actually I was seeing them for the first time. But um, I had to act with a mask on, which I bet you've never had to do. Well, <laughs> no, that kind of that's, that day may come <laughs> if we carry on in COVID forever. But anyway, so that was fun diving. Do you go inside the wrecks? Because I don't yeah. think I could cope with the, um, well, the claustrophobia of it. No, well, so one time when Andy and I were diving in Jordan in the Red Sea, there were just three of us. So there was a dive leader and Andy and me diving that day. Mm. And the dive leader had said to us that this wreck had an air pocket in it and that you could swim inside it and actually take your regulator out and have a conversation with each other. Wow, how deep down is it? I don't think it was very deep, that one. It never feels as deep as it does in England because you can actually see for miles. So it's you don't... A reason I love diving here is that it has this drama to it because you go down in the gloom and then your torches suddenly pick up this giant shape and then you're sort of like suddenly on, almost on the wreck before you see it. It's more like a horror movie than a, you know, it's very exciting. Whereas this one, it it was a nice wreck, but the main thing was this air pocket. And so we swam down to it and um, the dive leader swam in and I followed him and as I followed him through this hole in the side of the ship I felt this tugging on my fin and I thought I'd caught my fin on the metal and then when I turned around Andy hadn't followed me into the wreck and I realised that he had decided he couldn't cope with coming in so I went up into the air pocket and I said to the dive leader look he stayed outside I'm, I need to go out and find him so I swam out and he disappeared. Oh, no. So I started, I kicked into the sort of search and rescue thing you do where you describe larger and larger concentric circles. Yeah. And I was, like, looking everywhere, I thought. You can only really see in yes. front, can't you? Well, that's the problem, is then at some point I looked up and he was just hanging above me in the water <laughs> laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> Diving, you know, it's like, it's like those dreams... And the other thing it's like is the other thing that I'm addicted to, which is writing. There's nothing else that I do that I lose myself so totally in. Right. Um, Like in diving, I said, you feel weightless. You feel like you can fly, but you're somehow also part of the world in a way that you aren't as like a poor human in the air. Mm somehow you become a creature of the sea, if you like. And writing, you submerge too. And, I mean, sometimes I end up with, like, terrible back or something because I have no concept of my physical being when I'm writing. And time passing. Or time passing or hunger or any of those things. I actually end up setting alarms for myself these days because (laughs) I just completely lose myself. Yes. Is that because you're you're letting your mind wander, as it were, as you write? It's, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a really good thing to have on the dust jacket of a book. She let her mind wander. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it is. It's somehow you go into a different level of consciousness. It's about occupying a different part of your consciousness. Mm. None of the part of your brain that you're using to drive a car or 
pay bills or do any of the kind of dull stuff. It's the intuitive and imaginative as well as the logical part mm. of the brain, but but in harmony in a way that it's very hard to find at other times. Yes, letting yourself be imaginative, but at the same time, as it were, watching yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. So, um, right, okay, well, we put diving into the time capsule. Mm. So next, number three. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back with Catherine Mayer very shortly. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Catherine Mayer would like to put into her time capsule. Number three is uh, one of my um, sort of co-creations and passions. It's the Women's Equality Party. Mm. But I thought I'd choose a highlight from the Women's Equality Party's history. I suppose I should explain um, because... Unbelievable though this is, there are a few people out there who don't know about the Women's Equality Party, so I should explain what it is. Yes, including women. Including women, yes. Um, There are certainly a lot of women who don't know equality, which is why we founded it. So back in 2015, you were seeing the rise of the populist far right. You were seeing the political mainstream becoming weaker and weaker Mm. and as the political mainstream became weaker they began to copy those old parties the things that they thought were vote winners so one of the reasons for example that we have brexit now is because they instead of pushing back against the idea of brexit they kept trying to appease the idea and they Mm. kept trying to win over brexit voters by sounding more brexity than other parties so basically ukip at its height because the electoral system here it's only ever directly won one seat in parliament but it had this tremendously 
unfortunate impact on British politics because the political mainstream appeased and copied. So I was watching that happening and I was thinking about that mechanism and I was wondering, because I was getting very impatient having grown up and spent my whole life expecting equality to arrive for women. I grew up during second wave feminism and Mm -hmm. you know we believed it was just there on the horizon so I suddenly started wondering if we could show that feminism was a bit of a vote winner whether the old political parties would start copying us so the idea was could we create change faster by not only trying to win seats directly but trying to make the other parties the old parties better and I had this conversation with a very good friend of mine um, the um, it's always so impossible to describe Sandy Toxvig. Um, my, <laughs> my very beloved friend, Sandy Toxvig, who is obviously, I think she's kind of qualifies as for national treasure status now, doesn't yes, she? She does. Um, but um, she is a writer, broadcaster, um, polymath of. And she cooks really well. <laughs> um, and she's ridiculously nice. And she knits strange little animals. I have a, I have knitted animals downstairs that she's knitted for me. Oh, and she can fix anything. Really? Yeah, she's really handy around the house. Anyway, she and I were having this conversation over and over about how impatient we were feeling, at, you know, because mm. we were seeing instead of rights for women advancing with speed, we were actually in some cases seeing things rolling back or stagnating. Yes, And so we started having this conversation about that. And then she and I were both on the founding committee of a festival called the WOW Festival, Women of the World at the Southbank Centre. And um, one WOW, I went to an event which was with some women from different parties having a discussion on stage and they were all getting on really well. And I was watching them getting on very collegiately. Mm. And so when the microphone was passed around, I said, you know, how about we actually recognise the common ground around this thing that supposedly all of your parties subscribe to, with this idea that equality isn't just a matter of social justice, but is actually something that is economically and socially beneficial and long overdue. And how about I found a women's equality party? If anybody wants to discuss this with me, I'll be in the bar, which was potentially and probably in reality one of the most expensive things I ever said because this was in the theatre with many hundreds of people in it. And quite a lot of people did come to the bar and social media picked up on it. And so by the time I got home... I kind of discovered that I had indeed founded a political party. (laughs) So I kind of, I put something on Facebook about it as a joke. And Andy had just gone off touring. And I wrote something like, Andy's only been gone for one night and already I've only had a sandwich for dinner and I founded the Women's Equality Party. (laughs) Then I went to sleep and by the time I woke up, all these people had joined up underneath my post. Good Lord. Then Sandy rang me and I started to tell her what had happened. And she went, but darling, that's my idea. And she was planning to do a fantasy parliament. And she said, I was just ringing to offer you the post of foreign secretary, darling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we then ended up doing the other thing we always do, which is we went to drink some beer 
and we decided we'd actually see whether it was possible to to set up a party. Mm. And of course, it's really hard to set up a party. The idea that you can just do it on social media by going, I'm setting up a party. I mean, it's they make it as hard to enter politics as they possibly can. It's massively bureaucratic, incredibly hard even just to set up a bank account. But of course, you have to register as a party. You have to jump through all sorts of hoops to do that. Mm. There's all sorts of um, governance that is supposed to stop corruption. And of course what it doesn't really do is stop corruption for people who have a lot of money and the desire to be corrupt. But what it does do is it makes it very expensive for startups and small parties. Mm. And then that's within a political system that is absolutely gamed to exclude outsiders. So, of course, as soon as Sandy and I realised what we'd done, it was like, oh, my God, we've ruined our lives and now we're ruining a load of other people's. <laughs> like, as all these people had started volunteering and working through the night and everyone was just getting exhausted. But by then we were too deep in to escape. So the, the WOW Festival was in March and by July we'd managed to register for a party and by October we set up our first we unveiled our first big set of policies. Mm. And in May the following year, so 2016, we ran in our first elections and we got more than 350,000 votes in our first election. The great thing was we took our policies. This is one of my ideas that I was quite proud of. Every time we unveil policies, we produce them nicely, we wrap them in ribbon and we deliver them to the other parties with a note saying, please steal me. (laughs) Uh, because we're trying, you know, the idea is to make them better. Yeah, you're never going to become the majority party. Well, you not, might do, but, but that wasn't system. the aim. I think if Sandy stood for public office, I think she's probably too frightened to stand in case she does get elected. Yeah. But but basically, we have now been going since 2015, and we've grown and grown. But of course, the political situation has become more and more crazy and dangerous and the things that were worrying me and worrying Sandy about seeing progress not only stall but reverse that's coming horribly true Mm. the pandemic laid so much of this bare and also made so many things worse you know it locked down women with their abusers, the lack of childcare, but also the assumption about who does the caring. All of those inequalities, all of those structural and systemic inequalities have come to the fore very Mm. clearly. Mm. And at a point where you have these terrible governments around the world that are just rolling back reproductive rights and doing terrible things. And of course, then this intersecting in very many ways with the ways in which those impacts of inequality are so much worse for people of colour and for people with disabilities and and everything that's been going on with the Black Lives Matters movement. Mm -hmm. All of that, it's all incredibly important in this awful polarised world that we're in. Everything that we're doing feels so urgent, but also so much more difficult to do because the avenues that were open to us, the platforms narrow, the media starts only covering COVID. And in fact, you hear almost nothing about any party other than the party of government at the moment, if you look at the coverage here. And the same in America. Yes. Yes. You know, they do it on the basis of if they can afford to buy the publicity. Yes. Well, I mean, that is one of the things that's very bad about the systems, both sides of the Atlantic, is money doesn't just talk, it screams and Mm. shouts. And so... 
it's really interesting because in spite of all of that, I feel very proud of what we've already achieved and I feel optimistic about what we can achieve because one of the things about what's going on is we don't have to make the argument anymore that we used to about why we're needed. When we first started up, people kept going, oh, but there are women leaders everywhere. I mean, A, that was complete bollocks. Mm. Um, I actually sat down and calculated it a couple of years ago and just looking at elected position, the highest it ever got was 8%. And we were having to make this argument, you know, of course you're not necessary. Women have equality already. So the moment that I want to take in my time capsule, see, I told you I was incredibly (laughs) long-winded, is um, last year I was at a a wedding. We'd had the local elections, and I thought all the results were through. Mm. And we'd done incredibly well in some places. Um, Like, we were getting 25% of the vote in some places. You know, I mean, really incredible vote. And I went to this wedding, Andy and I were at this wedding, and um, I got this, like, incredibly excited text from Sandy, like, you've got to ring me now, whatever you're doing. And um, I rang her and she was crying. And she's crying because we just won a seat. Oh, um, my word. And the count had been delayed and it came through later. So in Congleton, which we call the Feminist Republic of Congleton, <laughs> uh, Kay Wesley, who's an amazingly brilliant woman, won a seat there. But it came through at the wedding. So I felt quite guilty as well because, you know, I was saying about laughing till you cry. In this case, I just cried till I cried. (laughs) And I was kind of like sobbing at this wedding where people were kind of like sobbing because it was a beautiful wedding. And I was like sobbing because we just won the seat. And then during the speeches, somebody got the microphone and gave a speech about us having just won the seat, which Uh was very lovely. Um, But it, it was just a really... A really lovely... It's an extraordinary thing, though, isn't it, to go from announcing in 2015, saying, well, I'm going to start a party, and four years later to win your first council seat. Well, and also the people... So the other thing that really gives me optimism is our party has become a hunting ground for other parties trying to steal from us, not just policies, but great candidates. Right. Because other parties are very impenetrable and it's quite hard to become a candidate in their systems. Mm -hmm. But it's particularly hard for women because all the same reasons that keep women out of politics and, and are barriers for women in other respects, the expectation that they will do more caring, that time poorer than men and usually literally poorer than often literally poor um, often in jobs where it's harder to take time off all of that Mm. so we've been doing all sorts of things to support women into candidacies including providing child care and other kinds of bursaries to help candidates and what's happened is that we've brought all of these women in who would never have got involved in politics before. Um, We've had two leaders of the party. There's a woman called Sophie Walker, who was the first leader, who had never done politics before, just sort of evolved into this amazing, fully-fledged politician. She's been succeeded by Mandu Reid, who is the first ever person of colour and the first ever woman of colour to lead a political party in this country. Wow. 
And I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that it's taken. It's absurd, yeah. To her, but that again is like about the barriers to to mm-hmm. doing politics. But she's just she is so brilliant. But I mean, a lot of the parties do try to get women in. But if you think about what happened with Me Too and the levels of harassment and abuse in Westminster, which, by the way, if you want to know about, I was a journalist in Westminster for years. I was bloody groped and harassed for years and years and years. And so it is no surprise to me at all the you know, the various scandals that erupted. Mm. Um, but it makes it a hostile environment for women. Mm. So it's not enough to bring people into politics, you then have to find ways to enable them to actually survive and thrive there. Mm. And so I I really have always wanted the other parties to do better. Sandy and I would go home tomorrow if we could. Yes. Um, yes, you, know, you suddenly went, oh, it's happened. That's good. Yeah. We also did something very direct. We're political party but we're also activists Mm. so we decided at the last election that we would do something about it so we got these amazing women all of whom were survivors of assault or or abuse to run as candidates and they ran against people who were facing allegations of assault or abuse and not one of those MPs is now sitting in parliament so we got, in that sense, a clean sweep of our target objectives. So yeah. I would say we did better than any other party in the last election. <laughs> but we, we, did, we did some brilliant stuff, that, um, including we ran these spoof job adverts for Pestminster. <laughs> and they, they had pictures like, you know, want to be able to grope with impunity, become an MP. And we, <laughs> and we, and we ran them um, as poster campaigns, but also on LinkedIn. We had like fake job adverts on LinkedIn. Very good. <laughs> very good. Well, I'm going to take that very teary, but wonderful phone call from Sandy. Yeah. Telling you you'd actually won. So we've got uncontrollable laughter, we've got diving, and we've got the phone call at the wedding telling you that you'd won a seat. Okay, so my fourth one is festivals. Music I, festivals. Well, all festivals, all really. Festivals, I mean, yeah. not all festivals in the <laughs> sense that I've been to some dire ones, and I bet you have too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I mean, one of the things that was lucky for me in you know, being Andy's partner for nearly 30 years was I got to go to some of the best music festivals in the world. Mm. I got to go in the best possible way, which is I didn't have to do anything about getting tickets. And then I got to go straight into the backstage area (laughs) and, you know, get served chilled wine rather than being up to my neck in mud. So... I have a slightly unrealistic view of festivals. Um, I'm going to ask the question that if, if you say yes, then everybody's going to envy you. Have you ever done that thing of flying in in a helicopter? Yeah. <laughs> but not with, not with Gang of Four. They're not like a jumping out of a helicopter type of band. No, I mean, that's me as a journalist. I've, uh-huh. I've, um, well, I've also flown in U2's private plane. <laughs> I mean, I don't, know, I don't think, to be fair, it's not their private... It was a... <laughs> Plane chartered by you two. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. I've yeah, been, I've been in I've, those. We've all been in that. I've yeah, been in, yeah. you know, motorcades and all that mad stuff. Um, now, I've, so the fun thing about being a journalist is getting behind the rope lines one way or the other. Mm. But being with the band in that sort <laughs> of like, you know, slightly embarrassing way 
it means you get further behind the rope lines, you yeah. know. It's like you're in the dressing room rather than waiting in some holding pen. Side of the stage. Oh, yeah, well, wherever. But, I mean, bloody hell, it certainly wasn't glamour. I mean, the last time I toured with the band, with Gang of Four, mm. it was our 20th wedding anniversary. So Andy and I lived together for a very long time before we made up our minds to get married. <laughs> So it was our 20th wedding anniversary last year and they were playing Athens. So he and I flew out a day ahead of the rest of the band and we booked into a really lovely hotel and we had a really lovely meal overlooking the Acropolis Mm. and we had like a really lovely wander around the archaeological museum the next day and it was all lovely and then it was time for them to play and we moved from our lovely hotel to the hotel the band was in. It was like, utter shit. <laughs> um, you know, and I've also done loads of going on the bus with the, the tour bus across America loads of times. And people used to say to me, you know, that must be so glamorous. And it's no, it's really not. But like that tour bus would go from festival to festival. So, for example, a couple of years ago now, I saw Patti Smith. And um, where the bus was parked, it meant that I was kind of like in this, like right, right beneath Patty Smith. And one of the great festivals um, was one called Fuji Rocks. It used to be at Mount Fuji, and it isn't anymore. But it's um, it's it's in the Japanese mountains, and it was the most spectacular festival. Huge, I think they played to about three hundred thousand people or something. Um, but you know, unlike one of those British ones where they are very muddy and the food is really bad and overpriced and all of that, mm. this was beautifully organised and you could buy like <laughs> the most fantastic sushi for almost no money. And, um, but all the tents were like perfectly arranged and and it was like beautifully sanitary. Um, you know, great music that you just get to see up close mm. without having to do all the boring bit. Yeah, because the other side of it is, from the if you're just a normal punter, is you stand for two hours waiting for a band to come on in a field with yes. people basically urinating all around you. I uh, d- but people urinate... I mean, I have to say being backstage is no protection against that. <laughs> I was once in one where somebody didn't realise that the, there were sort of gaps in the barriers and I was in the backstage area but I was standing up against a fence and there was a gap in the barrier and some twat stuck his knob through and peed on me. <laughs> I don't think that was like a deliberate assault. I think no. it was like literally somebody very drunk falling against the fence the other side but I couldn't get out of the way fast oh. enough. There's something about festivals. Now, I've done, as an author, I've done tons and tons of literary festivals mm. But I got, I was getting quite fed up with literary festivals because you go to them and, you know, I'd be on the circuit and I'd see the same people again and again and again. And they did look very samey, which to be fair, I mean, music festivals are also, um, you know, terrible on the diversity front. Um, they're, They're making a bit more of an effort now. But if you look at the statistics, it can be really bad. So, um, last year, can't believe it's only last year this this period of time has been so strange we founded a festival um and when I say we it's a bit like the women's equality party you don't want to be standing too close to me when I've got an idea (laughs) Um, because um what happened is one of Andy's best friends from way back 
the bands came out of Leeds at the same time. And there were lots of these different bands came out of Leeds, Gang of Four, Delta Five, you know, Mark Armand, all of them mm-hmm. came out. Um, Scritty Politti, but also um, a band called the Mekons. And oh, yeah. one of Andy's best friends is also called Andy, was in the Mekons. And my Andy uh, and I had gone to stay with Mekon's Andy and his wife, Jane, who's a fantastic woman, Jane Dybal. And Jane was just about to stand down from this giant job in music that she had, one of the very rare women in a very senior position in the music industry. Mm. And she was talking about, like, they'd been running small festivals because they live in the countryside and they have a lot of land and they've been running small music festivals there. And she was saying she liked the spoken word thing. And she said aloud something like, um, do you you think there's any more room for like another spoken word festival? And she didn't even finish the (laughs) sentence before I shouted yes. (laughs) And then I emailed around a load of people that I know, including a um, very wonderful writer, a novelist called Kit DeWall, Sabina Akhtar, who had crowdfunded something called Cut From The Same Cloth, uh, writing by hijabi women, um, Manisha Rajesh, Shona Bianca, uh, Shola Moshok Bamimu, I got Jude Kelly on board, Sandy was involved in it, Catherine Riley, who's actually running the damn thing now. Um, <laughs> and we call ourselves the Prima Donnas. So we founded this festival called Prima Donna Festival and we ran the first one last year in Suffolk. And it was just wonderful. I like doing mottos as another one of my things or slogans. So I wrote the one for the Women's Equality Party, which is because equality is better for everyone. And uh, I then came up with one for Prima Donna, which is the world as it should be for one weekend. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? But it it bloody well was. It was the world as it should be. And so we had fantastic music, but we had like amazing, amazing stuff around books and other forms of creativity Mm. by very good programming. We had Bernadine Evaristo before she became the first black woman ever to win the Booker Prize, just before. And we also had, um, you know, Seanad William, don't you? So Seanad is, you see, another prima donna. She's one of the co-founders. Oh, and Joanna Baker. Oh, my God, I I pulled so many brilliant people in. Joanna (laughs) Baker, who had just stood down from running the Edinburgh International Festival, and she thought she was going to have a quiet life. And she, <laughs> she's an old friend of mine. And she made the mistake of, like, again, like Jane, saying she was standing down from a big job. No, you're not. Yeah. Um, but Seanad, who, of course, is the commissioning editor for comedy for Radio 4, we did this brilliant thing um, called Make Seanad Laugh, uh, where we gave everyone who wanted to, who was an aspiring comedian or writer or whatever, they had three minutes to come on stage and make her laugh. Very good. And she's actually found there are actually people who had books signed at the festival, comedy writers who are now working as uh, yes. professionally as a result of this. And that was the point. It was to open... And there were new audiences. There were people who went to that festival who'd never been to festivals before. Mm. Um, people who'd never been on stage before alongside the famous names everything a festival should be. There were hay bales. There was mostly sunshine, but a bit of cloud. <laughs> there was food you could drop down yourself. Um, we, Jane, as a joke, did a kind of space for... I mean, it was 
called Prima Donna because we were putting women first, but there were men on stage, but there were also a lot of men who came. Mm. And Jane, as a joke, made this wigwam, which was a safe space for men. And she put a Wisdom's Cricketer's Almanac in it and, and some pipe and like an empty lager can and stuff. Yeah, to um, make them feel at home. To make, yeah, just in case anybody... It's all right, it's all right, don't worry. Yeah, but actually the men loved it. And, and one of our best donations... But why wouldn't they? That's the point. Why wouldn't they? Well, quite. One of the things, again, that was so exciting about Prima Donna was that people came out of it saying this changed our lives. And actually quite a lot of the men who were there said that as mm. well. Like it either changed lives in shifting perspectives or like this was life-changingly fun or it changed our lives as in we got deals or whatever yeah, that yeah, going to change our lives. Yes. So, yeah, it was amazing. And we're just at the stage of um, sort of beginning to gear ourselves up for next year next and year. crossing everything that we can do it in the flesh again. Yes, absolutely. But my God, I, I can't wait to be back at Prima Donna. Well, I'm going to put it in the time capsule for you. Put Fuji Rocks, but put the first ever Prima Donna, the 2019 uh, Prima Donna, because it was like literally people were saying it changed their lives. And I've never been to a festival before where people said that. No. Well, I've known people who've said it for the wrong reason. Like they got, <laughs> they lost their trousers and got arrested or something. <laughs> but, I don't think there was any of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's in there then. All right. Well, we've got one to go, Catherine. So, uh, but this is um, this is something that you'd like to get rid of, really. Yeah. Something you look when you look back and you think yourself, well, uh, I'm happy to bury that in the ground. The thing that I would like to get rid of is a style of interviewing and a style of setting up interviews. So it's something I always hated as a journalist, and it's something that I hate as an activist, as somebody who would like to create change. And it's something that I hate within the context of a polarised world. And it is aggressive, adversarial interviewing, Mm. not just the interviewing style of the journalists, but something worse than that. It is nowadays, literally, ever since I've become, you know, got public profile as a feminist, I get rung up and asked to come on to argue ridiculous propositions against ridiculous people. (laughs) And, you know, they don't want a serious discussion, which would be much more interesting about, like, why is there a gender pay gap? Mm. They want to discuss whether there's a gender pay gap. We fucking know there's a gender pay gap. Right, so somebody's saying, Um, oh, there's not really a gender pay gap. And they they want you to get angry. Is that what it is? Yeah, well, of course, I mean, you would get angry, but you wouldn't get anywhere. No. I mean, during Me Too, for example, they're constantly wanting me to come on and kind of debate things like, has Me Too gone too far? It's like, it's barely started, mate. (laughs) And when I say it's barely started, mate, what I mean is, what with Me Too you actually heard and saw was after years and years of these stories not being told there was suddenly an opportunity for this stuff to spill out but it didn't change anything Mm. there was very very little that changed Mm. and so the much longer term work is the embedding the lessons of me too so that that sort of harassment and abuse doesn't happen going Mm. forward Mm. And they, what they love to do, they love to find a woman who's going to disagree with a woman and sort of turn it into a cat fight. Mm-hmm. So they'll put you up against somebody who'll say something like, 
well, I had a hand on my knee and it didn't hurt me. Yeah, I know, you know. Yeah, you're yeah. talking to somebody who got through many decades as a journalist with many hairy-backed hands on the knee. And it certainly didn't kill me, but it did in many ways that are much more subtle affect the way that you work. Mm. You know, I used to, for example, with good reason, worry about meeting people at hotels for interviews, meeting people in hotel rooms. And the number of times you'd have to extricate yourself from somebody who mistook you coming for interview as sort of room service. Now, the fact that I managed to extricate myself without any very serious things happening to me does not mean that it's okay. No, the idea or that it, that what it doesn't makes, happen. And the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is mm. very bad in this case. But it's also like for everyone like me who emerged relatively unscathed, there are people who did not and there are people whose careers were over before they began and it's still happening. So these interviews, they turn everything into slapstick or a punch-up. Mm. And there are lots of really interesting conversations you can have. There, you know, there are interesting conversations about the nuance and, and the need for nuance in these things. There are interesting conversations about the idea that, for example, feminists agree with each other is hilarious. The idea that you have to get a, a feminist and an anti-feminist to disagree. <laughs> I mean, I have never seen more than three feminists in a room and not a fight start. Um, but at least the fights would be more interesting yes. because we would be discussing from a, an informed position, understanding the economics, understanding the politics saying this is the starting point, this is the end point we're all trying to get to, but we have a different approach to getting here and let's talk about that different approach. And, of course, disagreeing is not always adversarial. I mean, and that's... Yes, it is. I, no, I just <laughs> let me finish, let me finish. I'm speaking. Quite often you'll listen to a, yeah. uh, something on the radio and the, the people start by saying, let me finish. Yeah. It's very common, that... I, I would say that one of the reasons you have that kind of hideous, oily, non-answering of questions among politicians is precisely because that kind of adversarial conversation has been thought for years to be the best way to extract information. Mm. And it isn't. I mean, I get put up against such jokers it's like, um, shall I name any of them? No, I'm not going to. But it's literally, but I know it's what literally you mean. they have a Rolodex. It's like some old-fashioned dusty Rolodex full of the most stupid controversialists who know the least that they can mm. possibly find. Mm. And I get, I literally get round up by these very young researchers who say things like, we want you to come on to have a fight with so-and-so. And, and then... I was once sort of auditioned for Question Time and that was when I was still a journalist and they, I think they were on one of their periodic things of realising they didn't have very many women on the show back yes. then. And um, this person rang me up to ask me about my views on certain things and I hadn't watched Question Time very much mm. at that point and I still haven't uh, because I don't like the way that, that Question Time works. But anyway, so they asked me what I... I can't remember, but I think it was a kind of Brexity question they asked me. Of course, I was bloody Europe editor of Time magazine <laughs> at the time. So I gave them an extremely erudite, informed answer. 
And this person said, in tones of enormous disappointment, that's very reasonable. <laughs> and I and I just knew they were never going to call no, back. They didn't want you to say something controversial. They wanted me to be controversial. I think there are reasons to be controversial, but it is not the way that we are going to move forward with debate. And we're in a world that is horribly polarised for all sorts of reasons. You know, social media has had a very polarising impact and, mm. you know, literally these huge gaps between rich and poor in different sections of the population and yep. this terrible um, rising populism. And into that, what you need are enjoyable conversations between people who are well-informed. And it also gets confused because the BBC in particular is very paranoid about appearing balanced and mm. always in trying to be balanced, they end up at their most unbalanced. Yes. So what they'll do is they'll have a climate change scientist against a climate change denier. Yes. And that is not equivalent because the scientist is somebody who comes on with a great deal of backing and, and informed viewpoint. And a climate change denier is generally somebody who is who just doesn't want it to be doesn't the case. want it to be true yeah. uh, which is pretty much the same that happens with feminism so basically i get put up against people who go no no it's men who are suffering the most at the moment you know the worst thing to be is a rich white man <laughs> literally <laughs> everything's say, against us everything yeah. <laughs> yeah. god it's tough Catherine. <laughs> it's so tough work has always come along Everything's been fine. <laughs> I'm ahead of the queue. Nobody ever treats me with suspicion. I don't get stopped by the police. It it's must a, be hell when oh, you it's want hell. to write, write Nobody your taking any notice of me. Constantly you see that thing yeah. where people will make an argument based on a catchphrase. I've spent much of my life being adversarial, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, and doing this podcast. The one thing I have learned is that I don't know very much and actually it just is listening to people is far more educational than me spouting on about the few things that I think and so I think that's the answer we need to start listening to other people and hearing what they're saying really hearing what they're saying yeah and try to understand it I really love when it's time we are coming up to an election the thing that is really important and particularly now with with that polarization we're talking about is canvassing, canvassing is going yeah. door to door and actually listening mm. actually having conversations with people lots and lots of them not kind of politically engaged at all but most of them worried about something yes that is misunderstood as being just an exercise in twisting people's arms to get them to the polling station i have learned more from canvassing it is an absolutely eye-opening experience. And it's just, um, I think everyone should do it because we live in this sort of bubbled world. Yes. Um, particularly now where we're kind of literally in bubbles <laughs> in lockdown, <laughs> where we don't hear other perspectives and we don't understand where people are coming from. No. And one of the things that is so lovely, you meet you do meet people who are like hideously abusive and throw things and whatever. <laughs> but most of the people you meet are really nice. Most of them 
want good things. Mm. Most of them are well-meaning. And that is what the world out there is like. But it's very easy to forget it. Yes. Well, Catherine, thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you about the the things you want to put into the time capsule and everything else. (laughs) You're welcome. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Catherine Mayer. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or iTunes, or your own favorite podcast provider. And we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You just search at MyTCPod or Mike Fenton-Stevens, that's me, or My Time Capsule. It's easy. This podcast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you for listening. Right, I'm off to paint the kitchen. All right, it's not a political party, but we all want to make a mark in this world. I mean, you should see the disgusting colour I'm painting it. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.